Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Let out a howl, because this is Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri. Hello. And I'm Devin Shepard. That was my howl. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was good. We started a really unusual werewolf story last week, so I think we ought to get right back to it. We now return you to Dog's Body, written by Malcolm Devlin and voiced by James McNaughton. The Volunteer was a different sort of pub, with a very different sort of clientele. Gil had tried to convince Tobin to come with him, but Tobin demurred. They'd parted ways at the top of Ship Street, and there'd been an awkward handshake, followed by an even more awkward straight man-hug that only served to embarrass them both. Tobin set off down the street, and Gil saw him brush his coat down as he went. As Gil expected on the evening before the anniversary, the pub was heaving, thickly overheated and ripe with the smell of beer and bodies. Gil pushed his way into the warmth of the mob, plotting a course to the bar. The crowd swelled and eddied around him, his presence accepted, then ignored. They weren't all werewolves here, but a lot of them would be. The others were friends or hangers-on, or those who simply wished they'd turned themselves. Some had witnessed people change, and that tiny fragment of magic was intoxicating enough. Now they followed the were-crowd, greedy to see more. Finally, there were those who just wanted to fuck a werewolf, either in human form or otherwise. They weren't really fussy. This group were easy to spot. They were the ones in the three wolf moon t-shirts, the bite me pin badges, the felt and taffeta tails hanging out the back of their shorts and skirts. Gil had seen it all before, 
the volunteer took all sorts. As he waited his turn at the bar, Gill let himself be distracted by the TV in the corner. The news was on, with more talk about the anniversary, more footage of monstrous bodies lying unconscious in public places, more vox pops from the day, which already had the appearance of something vintage and irrelevant. Then there were the crazies. The elderly woman who tried to convince the police her husband had been killed by a werewolf, one who'd apparently stabbed him eight times in the neck with a letter opener, and the guy in Covent Garden whose rant had gone viral on Facebook. The rapture has already happened, he said, eyes wide, arms flapping. No one deserved to be taken to grace. We've all been left behind, and the demons are already here. By his calendar, the world should have ended by now. Gil wondered if he was disappointed it hadn't. Gil! The barman was waiting in front of him. Big guy, bald and bearded, sepultura t-shirt stretched tight across his belly. All right, Warren, Gil said. I'll have a pint of that one there, and maybe a shot of grouse to keep it warm. Warren barely reacted. Starting sensible, Gil. Done that. Aiming for insensible now. Warren's grin was broad enough to split his beard in two. There was a loud jeer, and Gill turned back in time to see Chrissy Lindemann's doughy mugshot on the television. The program cut to the footage she'd taken five years earlier with her headband-mounted video camera. A fiercely opinionated gun rights activist, Lindemann had been shopping with her sister in a mall outside Atlanta when the event had occurred. She'd filmed herself taking out six werewolves as they slept, double-tapping each in the skull with the AR-15 assault rifle she kept in her Chrysler Aspen. One of her victims had been Justin Gethin, who had been celebrating his sixth birthday with a trip to the toy shop in the mall with his family. Her supporters remained unrepentant. They interviewed the protesters crowded outside the courthouse, I've seen all them videos from Africa or someplace where all the monsters are being killed, said one. But no one does a damn thing about them. It's only cause she's white, isn't it? It isn't fair. If they'd woken up, said another, Chrissy would be considered a hero. She is a hero. In the pub, the jeers turned to shouts of outrage. Raised fists blocked the view, and Gill turned away. Nothing else on, Warren. Nothing else. He planted the drinks on the bar, and Gill checked his wallet. Can I get a tab? Not if you're gonna be insensible. I won't be that insensible. Warren shook his head and took Gill's bank card. The volunteer was a large place, but every inch of it seemed occupied. Gill recognized a few people, most from his previous visits, but there were some he hadn't seen since quarantine. He nodded in curt acknowledgement, a little alarmed how they all looked so similar these days, but he wasn't in the mood to talk to them. In a strange and almost childish way, they felt like the bad crowd his mother used to worry about him falling in with at school. He found a table occupied only by dead glasses. It was small and sticky-surfaced, wedged under the staircase, but it gave him a good enough view of the outlay of the pub. He sat himself down and downed his scotch, swallowing a finger or two of beer to soften its burn.
The game at the nearest pool table was being interrupted by raised voices, so Gil dwelled pointedly on his phone and considered dialing his mother's number again. He didn't really have anything new to say to her. He could tell her about the job rejection, but it would only start a lecture, and he wasn't in the mood for that. He scrolled through the numbers idly, and was almost surprised to find Stephanie's was still there. Stephanie would have hated it here. Too noisy, too unrefined. That wasn't fair. It frustrated him that he could only view his past relationships in the context of how they had failed. There had been better times between them. They'd had fun together over the four years they'd been a couple, and it never really mattered where they'd been. They'd met in a pub worse than this one, and that mad early rush of romance had a searing brightness, if no real depth or connection. Maybe they were still too young back then. By the time the event came round, they no longer smiled at each other in quite the same way, so maybe it was just the excuse they needed. He remembered her look of distaste when she came to visit him in quarantine. He'd been there for nearly two months by the time they'd opened the facility to visitors, and Gil's presence there seemed to embarrass her. It didn't help that the conditions were so strictly controlled in those early months, and the glass between them exacerbated the prison feel. Stephanie had sat opposite him. She'd brought a bottle of antiseptic gel and constantly dabbed it on her hands, rubbing and kneading them. She'd barely looked at Gil. Her eyes darted around the glass instead, looking for neglected breaches where some infection might find a way through. He remembered she mostly talked to him about work, and he remembered how that had annoyed him. He didn't remember what he'd said to her, but he didn't think he deserved the email she'd sent him four days later. We regret to inform you, etc., etc. This seat taken? There was something familiar about the voice that made him look up. He almost didn't recognize her to begin with. The rock chick look was so far removed from the neat tweed trouser suit she'd worn during the interview a week ago. Vicky, he said. Is that right? That's right, she said. She gestured at the stool, tucked halfway beneath the table. This seat is free, sure, all yours. She surprised him by pulling it out a few inches and sitting down to join him at the table, setting her fizzing highball next to his flattening pint. Gil glanced around the room as though he could figure out where she'd come from. You here with friends? It was a bit of a struggle to keep his tone civil. I'm meeting someone. She smiled, not like the small, curt smiles she'd used so sparingly during the interview. Those had been professional, on-off expressions she'd deployed like punctuation. This was something warmer, conveying sentences rather than silences, and for a moment, Gil felt it was an opening, a way in. I have to admit, he said, I'm kind of surprised to see you in a place like this. Last time we met, she said, I was interviewing you, not the other way around, so you don't have to be surprised by anything, really. We may as well have just met. Gil extended a hand. Gil Mackenzie, he said. Her smile widened as she took his hand and shook it. Of course, I have read your CV, she said. She picked up her glass and chased the straw around the rim. Yes, he said. About that. Her smile shrank a little. Yeah, she said.
sorry. She studied him for a moment, then set her drink back down on the table. Listen, I shouldn't be telling you any of this. It's very unprofessional. But we didn't turn you down for the job because you were LPS. That's what you're thinking, isn't it? Why then? She shrugged. You haven't worked in the industry for over five years. Your projects and references were out of date. In comparison with the other candidates, you just seemed a bit out of touch. Not my fault. I'm not saying it's easy, she said. But there are ways you could have kept on top of things. Programs, college, and so on. Bullshit. Okay, she said. I'll drop it, but just so it's out there. They fell to silence for a moment, and the argument at the pool table, violence brewing, filled the gap. Vicky said, do you smoke? Sure. Her eyes flicked across to the pool table. I could use some air, she said. Let's get some more drinks in first. There was that smile again. Deal, she said. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The smoking area around the back of the building. A small courtyard between the pub and the student flats behind. Pink stars, Vicky said, lighting up. Very classy. She handed the lighter back to Gil. The benches were already full of people, so they found a small corner in range of one of the patio heaters, where a wooden shelf had been bolted to the wall. When are you expecting your friend? Gil said. Vicky shrugged. Whenever, she said. Listen, I know this must look terrible, but meeting you here is a complete coincidence. I mean, obviously I figured you might be here, what with being LPS and the anniversary and everything. And yeah, it could have been awkward, but just coincidence. That's all. So you don't use your knowledge of people's CVs to flirt with them at pubs? God, no, she said. Wouldn't that be awful? No, I'm normal. Totally non-stalker. And you hang out in wear bars because... I don't, as a rule. Gil was surprised he was enjoying himself. They talked on, and easily... The crowd sifted and the empty glasses stacked up between them. The drink loosened him, and he found himself talking freely about his current job, about Grisham's suggestion he work with Hamley, about his time at Moorhouse. They talked about the event, too. It was in the air that night, and there was little sense avoiding it. They talked about Chrissy Lindemann's appeal, and how they both hoped she wouldn't get off. Gil told Vicky about the YouTube clip he'd seen where someone had taken the footage from the mall and added HUD graphics and sound effects so it looked like a first-person shooter. 
They were both appropriately appalled, both secretly amused. If you don't mind me asking, Vicky said after a while, is your dad LPS? I read somewhere that there's sometimes a genetic link on the father's side. I heard that had been disproved, Gil said. But yeah, he was. She caught the tone in his answer. Was, she said. He was driving across town when he lost consciousness. The van veered through a wall and ended up in the canal. He drowned, but they found his clothes had been all torn up, so they figure he changed first. Oh shit, I'm so sorry, Vicky said. I'm not, Gil said. He pictured the van sinking in a way it could never have done. He imagined the letters peeling off the side one by one. The face inside, too busy becoming something new to appreciate it was dying. Fuck, I don't know, Gil said. That's not true. I'm sorry, but I didn't really know him that well. I used to work with him over the holidays sometimes. Weekends, you know. He was just some guy who came round. But there's a reason mum left him. There's a reason she finds it hard to look at me. Now I've grown to look more like him. Uncomfortable, he backtracked. But it happened to a lot of people. That plane, for instance. Terrible, Vicky agreed. Many died during the event. The change taking them at inopportune times, when they were balanced at the top of staircases, on the edges of train platforms, while crossing the road, driving cars and buses. In China, a pilot changed mid-flight, slumping over the yoke and driving the plane down into the sea. It was a late-night red-eye flight, and barely half full, but there'd been no survivors. Vicky set her drink down on the still. So I'm going to tell you a story, she said, and you're not going to interrupt. Deal? Deal, Gil said. Good. So I was in Australia. I had a work holiday visa there. The deadline was 30, and I got there just before my 30th birthday. I thought you were younger, Gil said. Smooth. But you said you weren't going to interrupt. Sorry. So I was in Melbourne and I was working, mostly doing shit jobs. It's what people do when they're on work holiday visas. No one goes there for a proper job. I'd done fruit picking, I'd done bar work, and at this time I was working as a waitress in a pizza restaurant out on Brunswick Street. And it was all right, you know. The crowd were good fun, and I was sharing a house with someone else who was working there. And when we had time off, we'd go out together, go to the beach. It was okay. I was seeing someone, sort of. He was called Lance, and he was an idiot, basically. Rugby player build, crew cut, stubble. Used to walk around in a singlet all the time to show off the work he'd done on his muscles. She laughed. The point is, Lance was a dick. A dick with a stupidly high opinion of himself. And so when I say I was seeing him, I mean we would sometimes fuck and that's about it. He wasn't exactly sensitive. But, I don't know, sometimes you just settle for someone who knows what they're doing down there, you know? He was the sort of prick who figured out how to give a woman an orgasm because it made him feel good. It was an ego thing. She touched Gil's arm. Am I making you uncomfortable? Not at all. Just trying to figure out where this is going. 
I'm getting there. So one night, I was back in the flat. I was alone, and it was late, like three in the morning, and I'd had a hell of a shift. <laughs> Jesus. And then Lance comes along, banging on the door. He's so drunk he can barely stand. God knows how he got himself up the stairs. And I let him in, which I know was stupid, but there you go. And he's being all amorous, drunk amorous. I love you, I can't live without you. Someone else has clearly told him to fuck off that night, so his G-spot PS has directed him to the nearest soft touch. She pointed to herself with both thumbs. I know it's all bullshit, and I'm just not in the mood. And I tell him he should just go home, sleep it off. But he won't budge. Tonight, he's decided to come as the full asshole. And he sort of herds me towards my room. Because he's a big guy, you know. Those muscles aren't all show. He's strong. And mostly, I just can't be bothered dealing with this right now. The more he tells me he wants me, the less I want him to touch me. No, I tell him. Go away, come back when you're sober. No, he goes. We should totally screw each other right now. Right here. It would be so fucking hot. Only a drunk guy thinks that screwing a drunk guy might be hot. And by that point, he's cornered me by the bed. And I'm scared of him. I've never been scared of him before. But now, he's become more than a prick. He's become a prick with a purpose. And he stinks of alcohol. And he's huge, red-faced. He's terrifying. And my phone is somewhere else, so I can't call anyone. I'm looking for something to hit him with, but I've got nothing. Just last night's underwear and some dumb fuck's soft toys. Hit him with any of those and he'd mistake it for foreplay. So I draw myself up like this, and I point to him like this, and I go, Lance Parkinson, you're a monster. Swear to God, if you don't leave right now, everyone else will see it the way I do. And he grins, all drunk and lopsided like he's had a stroke, and he lurches forward anyway to try his luck. He gets one step closer and then, just like that, his eyes roll up into the back of his head like cherries in a fruit machine, and he collapses on the bed. And then, he turns into a monster. Gil blinked. Five years ago, Vicky said, almost to the day. Shit, Gil said. Yes, that's pretty much what I said. Her laugh sounded forced. Because of course you can imagine what I must have thought. There I was, staring at my hand like I just zapped him with something. Hell of a way to find out you're a witch, right? <laughs> but first things first, I'm scared he's going to wake up. Because now he looks really scary. You know what I mean? So I'm out of the room, and I barricade the door with the sofa. But that doesn't feel like it's enough. I'm out of the flat, and I'm running down the street. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I even believe it. Do I go to the police? Do I call an ambulance? What was I supposed to say? Hello, I've just turned my boyfriend into a monster. Can anyone help? There was a laundrette down the road. An all-night laundrette internet cafe place. I'd sometimes go there after work if I was still buzzing. Go for a chat, read a book. So I head there now, and there's a crowd on the street outside, staring in the big window at the front, and I join them and try and see what they're looking at. Another werewolf. Right. This hairy lump pitched forward with his head in one of the washing machines, halfway through emptying it. 
It would have been funny if it wasn't so. And then there are the sirens, raised voices, screams, and we can see the TVs on the wall on the back of the laundrette and the breaking news. And that was when I started to get an idea of how big it was. This was everywhere. And I still thought it was all my fault. This was all me. What if I was defending myself and I just overshot and this happens? And there I was, staring at my hands, trying to imagine all the power that must have been backed up inside of me. All this time, something world-changing, just waiting for a release. And was it? She laughed again, then raised her arm and pointed. Gil Mackenzie, you are an animal, a monster. She smiled. But again, there was a sadness there. No, see? Nothing. Coincidence, nothing more. But for a few days, I wasn't sure. I skipped work and I walked around the town, terrified of what I'd do next, as though I might make a careless gesture and burn down a city block. Because it's frightening, isn't it? That sense that you're not quite in control of who you are. That sense that you might snap your fingers and people will get hurt. Across the courtyard, a blonde girl was dancing for the benefit of a thick-set man with a shaved head and bulging eyes. The girl was much younger than he was. She wore a Teen Wolf t-shirt tied up under her midriff. The man at the bench was staring up at her, his expression somewhere between awe and horror. Do you know what really freaks me out about the whole thing? Vicky said. If I'd had a better day that day, and Lance had turned up as he did, I might have gone sodded and fucked him anyway. Can you imagine that? All those were groupies, desperate to screw an animal, and I was this close to living their dream. She grinned at Gil. People are weird, she said, and downed the remains of her glass. Time? Ten past twelve. Bar's still open. My round? You're already drunk. You're not drunk enough. She snorted. Go on then, one more. Then we should pour you into a cab. I'll walk. Can't afford a cab. My treat. Get some crisps. There was a difference, he realized, as he made his way to the bar, between being sober but feeling a little bit drunk, and being drunk but feeling a little bit sober. Everything felt muffled to him, but there was a fraction of awareness which cut through his clouded senses like an open window on a winter's day. He ordered two more drinks, another beer for him, another rum and coke for Vicky, and he could feel Warren studying him, trying to gauge his state. Near time for you to pay that tab, don't you think? He said. Sure, Gil said. Why not? The pub had emptied out a little, but there were new faces too, refugees from other venues which hadn't had their licenses extended for the evening. Somewhere behind him, a low voice pronounced his name, but it didn't feel as though it was for his benefit. Ollie was there, standing in the middle of the room. He was dressed up for the night, polished shoes, popped collar, bloodshot eyes. He'd clearly had a long night himself, and simply by looking at him, Gil felt more sober by comparison. He felt anger stir up as well, as though the drink had chipped something loose. At first, Gil assumed Ollie was alone. Then he saw the shape of Troy near the door. Benny, too, 
They were watching Ollie from a safe distance. They were on enemy turf, and neither looked comfortable to be here. Look at this, Ollie said. The working man. He reached out a hand and plucked at Gil's paint-spattered sweatshirt. Doesn't even bother getting dressed up for the evening, because this is you dressed up, innit? You're the sort of stiff who puts on a tie when he wants to relax. And here you are, come to a bar, pretending to be someone who works for a living. Maybe pull a bit of skirt. Some idiot's idea of a bit of rough. Look at my hands, Ma. I got calluses on my hands. Wanker. You know what you are? You're a fucking tourist. We all seen you going off in your suit to go to interviews every other week. His voice switched to a public school falsetto. I'm too good for this place. I'm going to get me an office job like I deserve. Baleful, his expression was. It was serrated with resentment, glinting in the dull light of the bar. He jabbed Gil's chest with his finger. Gil held the glasses steady, but took an involuntary step backwards. He felt as though the room was growing close and dark, as though Ollie had stolen the only light. He felt the flicker of fury brewing, and under his breath, he began to count its distance. One, two, three. And you see all these other people in this room, Ollie said. These fine, upstanding people. Tomorrow, they'll all turn into wolves. Sure, but wolves are fucking cool, man. Not you. You're a dingo. A fucking dingo! You're gonna spend the rest of your life licking your balls and humping the furniture. Gil breathed. Four, five, six. He breathed heavy, and something caught making his breath sound like a low warning growl. And that's you, Ollie was saying. Mummy and Daddy must be so proud. Sweeping up after scum like me. All that money they spent on you, and you're a fucking cleaner. You're literally picking up bitches in bars. You're a fucking dog. The last words were near as spat. But Ollie didn't wait for a response. The triumphant look on his face was not for Gil, but for the friends he turned back to, his arms raising, ready to accept their applause. Gil saw storm clouds, and they were beautiful. Fine. He wasn't sure if he said it out loud, but when he dropped the two glasses, they landed like punctuation. He didn't drop them. He cast them down, so they shattered on the painted floor, their liquid contents achieving an impressive radius, which almost cleared the room. People leaped away from the beer and the glass. An impromptu arena opened around him. Ollie turned in drunken surprise to stare at him with roomy eyes. Whatever the boy saw in Gil, it frightened him. All that confidence and bravado was flayed clean away with a quick stroke. Ollie looked scared, and to Gil, the fear was narcotic. Gil felt the eyes of the crowd turn first to him and then to Ollie, and it was as though at that moment everyone could see the boy as he did. They saw him as something small, insignificant reeking with fear. Gil could feel their hunger. They saw only the meat of him. Gil saw the pub as a room full of hard, sharp things, and Ollie as something soft and out of place. He felt a tide of something broiling inside of him, 
something that wanted to break that vegetable softness down and correct it, make it mineral. He stepped forward, quick and deliberate, and Ollie shrank back. Troy and Benny had fled, leaving him isolated, and Gil saw him struggle in his pocket, bringing out something that glinted in the dull light. The knife looked smaller now. There was something toy-like and preposterous about it. Ollie wielded it too slow, straight-armed, without confidence, and Gil easily knocked it spinning across the floor. It was almost disappointing. Gil could see how it would go from here, and it was far too easy, almost unearned. He felt sorry for the boy. He felt sad for him. This was no way to be bested. Ollie lurched to move, but again, he was clumsy, and again Gil was faster. He caught him with a hand on his neck, forcing him backwards against the wall. He balled up his other hand into a fist. With one punch, he knew he could drive straight through Ollie's face, through blood, through bone, all the way through the wall behind. He could feel that strength inside of him. He knew how to use it. Ollie whimpered. He was just a kid, after all. Gil felt her looking at him. Even in the midst of such a personal storm, which emptied his world of every other sound, every other sense, every other living thing, he felt her cutting through like a vivid splinter of blue sky, a trace of sun on the back of his neck, a flicker of heat that threatened to burn. He relaxed the hand on Ollie's throat and turned back to see Vicky spotlit in the crowd he'd forgotten was there. She was standing at the back of the room, against the wall. She wasn't looking at him. She was looking down to the side, as though there was something of interest on the floor, but he was sure she'd been watching. He was certain he'd felt the weight of her look, the darkness of her reproof. He watched her avoid his eyes and slip away again, out of sight. Time resumed, surprising him that it had slowed at all. The noise of the room was a roar. All eyes were on him, still high on a tension that for him had already slackened. Instead, he was overcome with a sense of vast, incomprehensible shame. So big and unwieldy, he could barely comprehend the dimensions of it. The enormity of it set him close to tears. He turned back to Ollie, his face bleached white and shining with sweat. Gil grabbed him in a rough and startled bear hug, before he blundered through the crowd and out of the door. Vicky was standing by the curb, her telephone to her ear. The brief roar of the pub's interior made her glance around as Gil opened the door, but when she saw him there, she turned away again. Did your friend turn up? Gil said. The one you were waiting for? Vicky pocketed her phone. Not really a friend. But yes, in that respect, they never disappoint. She turned back to him and set her hand on his chest. Here's something I don't understand, she said. Everyone's so concerned about the fact you all changed. The media, the government, all of you, most especially. But no one asks why you changed back. You were given all that power, all that strength and it was gone again before any of you could use it. She leaned in close. Maybe, after all that, you were found wanting. A taxi pulled up at the curb, and Vicky kissed Gil gently on the cheek.
When she turned away from him again, he was acutely aware of how cold the night had become. The guy we employed, she said as she opened the taxi door. He came out of quarantine and fought his way back up the ladder. Went on courses, like I said. Gil stared at her blankly. The guy we hired is LPS, she said. Bullshit. No, he's nothing like Lance. Nothing like you. He's at home this evening. Got kids. One of them's LPS too. Apparently, he was cute when he changed. Like a puppy. She ducked through the door and spoke to the driver. Gil didn't hear what she said. Again, there was a roaring in his ears that eclipsed everything else. The clouds were gathering again, the storm approaching. It was anger, he knew, but it wasn't aimed at her. It was directionless, arbitrary, and if he could have changed there and then, he knew he would have. Oblivion. Violence. He would have welcomed it all. He closed his eyes and, clenching his fists, he strained every muscle he knew how to control, as though he could have forced the monster out into the open, simply so he could have an excuse not to be there anymore, so he could absolve himself of anything it did. He willed himself to change, begged himself, until he felt the tendon stretched and screaming in his neck, his teeth crack, his fingernails gouging his palms. Five years ago, when he'd woken in the office, he'd found himself alone. His clothes were torn, his shoes had burst, and he felt drunk and unsteady as he struggled to his feet. He'd barely thought about how strange his situation was. He felt so weary, so tired. He just wanted to go home. He saw others around the office, woozy and ragged. They moved like revenants, but they couldn't bring themselves to acknowledge each other. He'd found his coat and stumbled outside to find an empty world which had changed irrevocably in the hours that had passed without him. He still wasn't sure how he found his way home. He only remembered it took longer than it ever had before and that everyone he passed backed away from him and gave him room. He'd heard sirens, and later he wondered if they were because someone had reported seeing a van in the canal. Some sad and lonely workman, face serene and preserved behind glass. When Gil opened his eyes, the taxi was still there outside the volunteer. The door was still open and he stared at it for long enough to imagine it might have been an invitation after all. Long enough for him to wonder if he'd misjudged her opinion of him. Maybe she wanted him to come with her, for them to go home, to start something, anything, everything. But he didn't move. The promise of the open door was such a delicate thing, he was loath to risk breaking it with his own clumsy advance. Instead, he watched as a hand reached out and pulled it shut with a snap. He watched, listless, as the taxi moved away from the curb. He stayed until the bright, angry taillights receded into the dark like the eyes of something primal retreating into the night. Then he pulled his hood up to counter the thin drizzle which started to thicken the air. There was one cigarette left in the pack. He teased it straight between his fingers and tried to light it, but the lighter failed to strike, so he cast it unused into the gutter. The dull thud of an early hangover 
was making room for itself behind his eyes as he turned his back on the noise and music of the volunteer and started, alone and heavy-footed, on the long walk home. What I love about this story is how utterly relatable it is. Even with the inexplicable werewolf element, it's so human because at its heart, it's all about career setbacks, discrimination, social status, the kinds of things that preoccupy all of us. Unfortunately, it's sad, but true, as this is a story about how people make monsters out of each other. Mm-hmm. I also love Devlin's commentary on appropriation in this piece. Even though werewolves were feared, they did have fans. True. Absolutely. And you know what? The dialogue really rang true for me. Devlin really captures pub talk well, I think. Those scenes in the bar especially felt very authentic. Yeah, I agree. Needing to show that we can all get along over a pint and an open conversation. Mm, There's nothing like it. And that's another one in the can. See you next time, Devin. I think we both deserve a beer after that one, Marco. And if you enjoyed this story, let us know with a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. And join us next time for an unusual ghost story set in India. Until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 95, features Dog's Body, Part 2, by Malcolm Devlin. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Osadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Devin Shepard. Performed by James McNaughton. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring drummer Andrew Niven, and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.